Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 8 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am thrilled to welcome NASA's Stephanie Milam, the James Webb Telescope's Deputy Project Scientist for Planetary Science, to the podcast. Prior to the COVID lockdown, Milam normally spent her time at her astrochemistry lab at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. But today, she joins us from the road to discuss what to expect from Webb's observations of our own solar system. Despite delays, there's still a great deal of excitement about how the $10 billion, 6.5-meter infrared observatory will revolutionize astronomy once it sees launch late next year. Stephanie, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you so much for having me. So what doesn't the general public appreciate when putting a telescope like this together? So um, Webb is very unique in many aspects. One of the, the most unique things about Webb compared to most other missions that NASA has flown is that it's a fully deployable telescope. Um, just the sun shield alone has to release over a hundred small devices to put it into its actual um, operational configuration after launch from its stowed configuration. So, and this includes everything from motors and cables and pulleys and springs, um, basically just to completely control um, what is happening with each motion, with, the, which eat, with each activation of each device um, in an interstellar or inner space environment. So we don't have gravity. Um, we don't have regular forces that these types of things would traditionally work with. So simulating that environment on such a large scale is really quite challenging. This telescope is going a million miles away from Earth. We will not be servicing it or able to fix any mistakes that actually happen during the deployment sequence with astronauts or even robotics at this point. So we have to make sure everything works the way that we anticipate it will work in a simulated space-like environment um, here on Earth before we actually launch it. So that means not only do we have to make sure the deployments work in these cold environments and uh, weightless if we can simulate it as best we can. Um, but also we need to make sure it's going to survive the, the rocket launch because it's not going to be in its fully deployed configuration. So we have to make sure while it's stowed in its sort of origami shape, <laughs> right. um, it can sit on a, on top of an Ariane 5 rocket and be launched and survive, all those mechanisms have to survive um, so that they work and properly function whenever we get it into space. So um, it is really quite complex. Our latest um, delay, unfortunately, had significant impact due to COVID-19, uh, which is unfortunate. And I think the whole world is uh, being impacted by by this um, pandemic, unfortunately. Um, 
so uh, we we have a lot of lessons learned that we're pushing forward with. Um, we are operating in a safe environment with the observatory and continuing our test program. Um, and we were able to do some work during um, the first few months of the pandemic as well, just as you can imagine, at a much uh, reduced level of effort, um, just due to having um, proper distancing and um, safety precautions that were being put in place for the engineers that were in the clean room. But one reason this telescope has been such a technical challenge is because it does have to be cool passively once it is on orbit to very low temperatures. Is that correct? Uh, the, the, the observatory itself is actually passively cooled. So just sitting in the shade of this giant sun shield that we have, that's, you know, the size of a tennis court, uh, actually cools the telescope down to an operating temperature of about 50 degrees Kelvin, um, where the only thing that is actively cooled on the observatory is one of our science instruments. The mid-infrared instrument has to be cooled so that we can uh, conduct thermal uh, infrared observations. Okay. And that is with a closed cycle cryocooler. And um, it had some technical problems in, uh, a while back, but those have all been resolved. And we have uh, operational, functional, and tested cryocooler on the observatory today. So is the web really a replacement for the Hubble, or is that a false corollary? It is not a replacement. <laughs> um, and it's, it's fun uh, to talk to the general public and, you know, present Webb as a successor to Hubble, but it's sort of um, misleading because it's not replacing it. Um, and we say that because, well, I mean, I say that because it's, it doesn't actually operate at the same wavelengths. Only a very small um, portion of the spectrum is actually covered by both telescopes, which is actually a really cool thing. If you're interested, I can tell you more. Um, but Hubble is primarily a UV optical telescope. Webb is primarily a near to mid-infrared telescope. So they actually are very complementary. Um, they will do, Webb is actually going to follow up on the revolutionary science that Hubble rewrote uh, astrophysics books for the last few decades with, as well as planetary science. And Webb is just going to continue in that legacy and expand the horizon uh, even more, I guess is a, is a fun way to think of it, um, actually peering back into the first stars and galaxies of the universe. And the Hubble will still be online uh, when the uh, JWST starts science operations? Yes. So Hubble is healthy. Um, all the instruments on board are great. It has um, a number of operational reaction wheels, which is a primary concern for operations for Hubble. Um, so as long as we have a healthy budget to keep Hubble operating, because um, we have to pay people to make the telescope work from the ground, um, and we also have to keep the scientists supported to use Hubble, um, as long as that's in place, everything should last for, um, I'm told, decades. Uh, however, we know that money isn't infinite, and um, at some point there will be a termination to the Hubble program. But for now, it is um, slated to operate, I believe, through 2025. That's incredible. So there will be overlap, yes, and that will be fantastic, especially if we can do simultaneous science with the two facilities. I think it will be amazing. So... Um the Hubble is a 2.4-meter uh, 
uh, telescope, spherical telescope. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the um, Webb is a 6.5-meter segmented telescope. So can you tell us, you know, why, are, why the segmented mirror for the 6.5 and why Hubble only needed, well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not being pejorative, but why 2.4 meters uh, and non-segmented? So, um, in the days of Hubble, a single mirror um, piece of glass was sort of the standard for large telescopes, um, especially something that we were going to launch into space uh, because it had to be able to fit in the the telescope housing, the whole element, you know, observatory mm-hmm. had to fit within the space shuttle. So that was a primary limitation for Hubble. It's also extremely heavy. It's a solid piece of glass um, that's rather thick. Uh, when Webb was, when we were coming up with the concept of Webb, we knew we wanted something with at least comparable angular resolution to the Hubble telescope. Uh, so that is wavelength dependent. So we needed a bigger telescope because it's lambda, the wavelength over the diameter of the telescope. Mm-hmm. But we also, you know, bigger is better. I don't recall what the largest uh, version <laughs> that was put forward for Webb's primary mirror, um, and even actually smaller. And the 6.5 actually came out to be a really nice uh value that gave us almost seven times the collecting area of Hubble, a hundred times more power. Since it's so much larger, we had to consider how big it was getting. And mass is definitely a thing when you're building spacecraft. So um, we knew we had to have something that was lightweighted. So a lot of innovation and technology went into lightweighting materials for the structure and support structure of web and um, including everything from what holds the instrument panels to the sun shield to the spacecraft bus. Um, but the mirror itself could end up being actually quite, quite heavy if you thought about um, having that as a single piece of glass. So uh, what it's made out of is beryllium, um, which is very thermally stable um, when it's cold. So you can polish beryllium and it always... Uh, looks like the same shape that you polished it at, regardless of the temperature. So you can cool it down and warm it up and cool it down and warm it up. And it always goes back to the same shape and and structure. So it's very dependable as far as being a passively cooled uh, material for optics. And where would we find find beryllium here on Earth? What do we normally, people normally use it for? um, All where, oh, normally? Yeah, beryllium is a carcinogenic, <laughs> so we don't use it very often here on Earth. <laughs> uh oh, okay. <laughs> uh, which is another challenge for the web team um, and our engineers uh, dealing with uh, making the mirrors. But anyway, so it's it's sort of honeycomb structured out, so it's bored out, so it's really lightweighted, and um, then they just did the the vapor deposit of gold on the surface. So even though it's 6.5 meters in diameter, the amount of gold, if you condense it all down and melt it down, is only about the size of a golf ball. So, you know, it's not like you could try and steal the web primary mirror and, you know, make your mama right. but, but the beryllium is, gift or something. <laughs> I, I assume beryllium normally has industrial uses, uh, not just for telescopes, and you you don't find it lying around your house somewhere. So, uh, no, uh, actually, all the beryllium for Webb was um, mined 
specifically for the project. Okay, gotcha. All right, well, let's step back uh, and get, okay. get to the bread and butter of, of this interview. What observing niche will uh, the JWST fill in terms of solar system studies? In the solar system, the bread and butter science case for Webb that is not that cannot be done with any other facility will by far be small bodies in the outer solar system. And actually even to some degree, small bodies in the inner solar system. There's one caveat to that. It is not a discovery observatory. We do not have one of these wide field cameras where we can go and basically stare at large swaths of the sky like um, Kepler did or um, name your favorite survey telescope. Uh, so it has a very small field of view. So it's definitely for targeted studies. So we'll be looking at individual objects as opposed to, you know, large surveys or areas of the sky trying to detect multiple bodies at a given time. But you will basically um, so be able to see from Mars on out. You're not going to turn it inwards towards Mercury or Venus. And so is Venus. No, is just, uh, no, we cannot. We cannot observe the inner solar system. And Venus. And is, that's because of the sun shield. Oh, OK. So even Venus yeah. is too much of a risk. I was, is, is that what you Yeah. Um, with the field of regard of Webb. Um, so the sun shield is, it's not flat. It's sort of boat structured. It has, it definitely cups a bit and that gives us um, a roll angle. So we can tilt it a bit towards the sun or away from the sun, but we certainly cannot point anywhere near it. Any amount of thermal energy from the sun or the earth actually um, will cause the mirror to warm up, um, and that's that's very very bad at these wavelengths. So um, we we can't do the inner solar system, unfortunately. But the, we do have access to small bodies that come near the Earth, um, including things like near Earth objects or asteroids. Right, we're gonna get, um, we're gonna cover that later on. But let's talk about Mars now while we're still looking at the okay. inner solar system. So it'll be able to observe from Mars on out. And um, mm -hmm. according to some of the NASA literature I've read, will help address such questions as how wet and habitable was Mars? How much water is currently available on Mars? How is the exchange between the polar caps with the regolith and the Martian atmosphere? Uh, but the caveat is that its optimal field of regard will only be available for a few months when Earth and Mars are at their closest. Uh, is that correct? Right. Okay. Yes. So, um, can you talk about some of the Mars science it will do? Yes. Um, first, we we are absolutely restricted because Earth kind of chases Mars around the solar system, and that's why even Mars missions have these crazy windows of opportunity that they can launch their missions. Um, so, yeah, we have a few months, um, sort of before and after the Mars Earth opposition. So, and that's about every two years. So that's when we'll be looking at Mars. The science of Mars is very complementary to all the other missions. Um, NASA has a huge investment in Mars science uh, with rovers, orbiters, landers, um, probes, sample return now, you name it. Um, everything, it seems like, in the solar system uh, financially goes to Mars. At least a good chunk of it does. Uh, and that's sort of a... a sour point with some planetary scientists, I believe. Right, yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, what we can do with Webb, and people ask me this all the time, um, I've actually talked to the Mars Society a number of times now, um, is 
why do we want to look at Mars with a telescope, with a remote sensing telescope? And the answer is because you can do a lot of science that you can't do with an orbiter or a rover or a lander. We get the full disk picture of Mars with Webb. So you can see, and even we have access to the night side of Mars, which is something we can't do from the ground. Mm -hmm. So we get the full picture, the global picture of Mars. And if you think about taking a number of snapshots as it rotates, you'll actually see how weather is affecting different molecules in the atmosphere or on the surface of Mars. Um, you can see uh, where, for example, as you already said, that how the ice caps are moving um, with season. You can determine if there's a, a different type of methane cycle because we can do this so much faster with Webb than we could ever do with something on the ground. All these full-scale maps that we have from ground-based telescopes are amazing, and they required an extensive amount of work and innovation to get these, these studies done. But the time it takes to do it and the limitations that you have with ground-based observing, especially in the infrared, you have to wait for night. You have to have a clear sky. You have to win time on the telescope. Um, some of these observations are so sensitive that you need multiple nights of looking at the, the planet, which means you have to align your observations such that you're looking at the same um, latitude or longitude at a, you know, for a given observation or of a given feature. With Webb, it takes minutes to get a spectrum of, of Mars. And we can actually map the entire surface in a matter of moments. And we can do this in one observation, and it's very quick and it's very efficient because Mars is so bright in the infrared. <laughs> it's actually a challenge to observe it with JWST. It's probably one of the hardest things that we had to figure out how to do. Um, and does that, that mean you'll we have to have wanted to say we could do Mars? You'll have to have filters uh, when observing Mars because it's so bright. Uh, so we don't have filters, ah. and that was that was a big. Uh, issue for us. So, so we had to figure out how to get this extremely sensitive infrared telescope that's supposed to see the first stars and galaxies across the universe to look at something extremely bright. I mean, the brightest object in the infrared sky is Mars. And mm. we wanted to be able to observe it. <laughs> um, so my job was to come in and make sure we could do that. So we've implemented things like subarrays. Um, and we have access to various... Um, spectroscopic uh, windows and filters modes that you can use that you don't necessarily get as much collecting. Um, you don't collect as many photons in such a broad bandwidth, so you don't saturate it as quickly. And what is so a sub you use it in, sorry, in what, narrow filters. What is a subarray? You mentioned a subarray. Okay, so if you think of an imager array, so, you know, a, a number of pixels squared, 1024, um, you right. know, 2048, how, however many pixels you want to think squared. Okay. A subarray would be taking that full array and only reading out, say, 200 pixels squared, as opposed to reading out the entire array. Aha, uh -huh. okay. So it's almost like putting a filter. It's almost like occulting the camera. <laughs> um, we're, we're not using the sensitivity, which a lot of astrophysicists have an issue with sometimes. Um, but it, it allows us to actually get the signal that we need 
with the required sensitivity, but also not use all the other pixels so that we're not just saturating everything. Because by the time they read out, you know, they read across, right? So all of the flux that's collected in each row all gets read out in a row. So mm -hmm. if you're only reading out a certain number of rows, you don't have as many photons to read out. So you don't saturate. Okay. So um, what, in your own mind, what's, what, <laughs> what are the one or two scientific questions that you hope the web will answer about Mars? About Mars? Yeah. I think um, doing follow-ups, oh, my favorite Mars question that I really hope web can help with is the methane on Mars issue. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we do have the sensitivity to do methane on Mars. Um, of course, it's not near as sensitive as a, a mass spectrometer driving around on the surface, but they only have access to a football stadium, whereas we get the full planet, right? Right. Um, and we do have pretty good sensitivity. And without atmospheric contamination which is one issue that has come up in the past with methane on Mars detections. Um, we don't have that issue, so we don't have to worry about um, atmospheric interference or any lines um, possibly contaminating or shifting or blending with any detections. Uh, we have fantastic sensitivity at these wavelengths. So um, getting really down into maybe not the part per trillion level or the five part per billion level, but definitely in the tens of, um, I believe parts per million level is what we can do. So could you, and, uh, could you give the listener, you know, kind of a, a brief summary of the methane issue on Mars and, and why it's important? So I'll give you the high level summary. Okay. There have been um, a number of observations that have been made to try to detect methane on Mars. Um, and determine whether Mars has something like a methane cycle, which would be comparable to our water cycle that we have on Earth. So if there is methane, which has been tentatively detected, some will say that it has been positively detected. I'm not getting into the politics of any of that. I will say the methane on Mars in the hand-wavy gesture mode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what is the source of it? So is it coming from geologic activity? Is it from post-biological activity? So think of like decay um, or even active biologic activity, maybe beneath the surface. Um, or is this something that is being cycled in the atmosphere, um, but the source of it coming into the atmosphere is still an enigma? Okay. All right, gotcha. So this is why we have rovers driving around that have drills that are trying to take core samples and test for it. Um, this is why we have orbiters that have um, spectrometers on board that are trying to detect it. But again, all of those are very localized detections. So if there's some sort of global mechanism for this, that's something that Webb will have insight into and the sensitivity. Plus, you can also complement that with things like carbon dioxide, for example, or carbon monoxide or any other sort of tracer that you would want to see whether or not they complement each other or, you know, maybe they trigger each other or they're molecular chemically related. Right. OK. So before we move to the outer solar system, 
Um, someone wrote that asteroids, you mentioned that the, the web would not uh, identify new uh, near-Earth objects, either cometary or asteroidal. Is, is that correct? That it'll be able to follow right. up. It's not a survey yes. uh, telescope. It's going to follow up and hone in on on different objects within the solar system. That's one of the things it's going yes. to do. And so yes. some, someone actually wrote uh, that asteroids were once derided by frustrated astrophysicists as the vermin of the skies. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> and that, was, uh, that was the first time I had seen that. I didn't realize that. And then I got to thinking that that's probably because, you know, back in the day, they were simply trying to see the next star over, and these things got in their way. Is that right? Is, is that what? It, what yeah. It so they they streak across their, you know, their. If you think about plates on old telescopes or, you know, photographic plates or anything like that, they they're on, often contaminating and um, very frustrating for people that are trying to do anything beyond. So the they were they were the, they were the ni- <laughs> kind of the nineteenth century version of a satellite constellation, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, a natural version. All right. So, um, but their present day orbits contain echoes of giant planet migration, offering constraints that can help us understand not only our solar system but others as well. And so, how will uh, the web uh, uh, use asteroid observations to better constrain? the evolution of our own solar system. So um, this this also not only applies to asteroids, but any small body in the solar system, inner or outer solar system. So one thing Webb is going to do very, very well is help us determine the size distribution of small bodies, as well as um, their composition. So you can imagine doing, say, a study of a number of asteroids and seeing um, if their current location has a compositional trend or a size trend um, compared to asteroids maybe in a different part of the asteroid belt. So think of inner or outer. You can even think of things like the Trojan. So, um, and, and the Trojan, if, again, is give us a parenthetical definition of a Trojan. Um, Trojans are um, small bodies that are stuck uh, gravitationally bound to a body. So Jupiter has Trojans. The Earth actually has Trojans. Um, so they're, if you just think of they're in these little clouds sort of on either side, <laughs> like mm-hmm. leading and trailing sides of the planet. Okay. Determining uh, the taxonomy, taxonomy of these bodies um, and trying to couple that with where they're currently located, what their trajectories potentially may have told us about their past of where they could have been formed, can give us a lot of insight into um, the dynamics of how the solar system was formed, whether or not these bodies were highly influenced by a certain planet migration, um, as which we can try and constrain compositionally, so you can see if they have... Um, compositional trends that would suggest that they were formed in different parts of the solar system compared to, you know, warmer versus colder. Uh, The existence of the Jupiter Trojans, along with their size, frequency, and orbital distributions, is used as evidence that Jupiter migrated early in the solar system history. Mm -hmm. And also that its migration was done via sudden jumps rather than a slow and continuous um, transit. Similarly, the distribution and taxonomic types throughout the main belt of the asteroids um, has been used as evidence and constraints for models of the solar system formation. So 
again, getting the size distribution, the composition, and then comparing that to where they currently exist and putting that back, that information into these um, solar system dynamics models um, can really give us a lot of insight into how the planets were moving um, and how they moved and when they moved, um, as well as how that redistributed the small bodies throughout the solar system. And the other good thing about uh, the, the web is that it'll be able to it has sensitivity and and can see in wavelength regions above the Earth, above Earth's atmosphere in a way that uh, makes it viable uh, for observing some 75% of near-Earth objects in a given year. Yes. So we have the sensitivity to actually look at the smaller ones. Okay. Um, so uh, not the smallest bodies, but, you know, something that's still going to hurt a lot if it hits. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um so we we have the sensitivity to actually be able to look at these these bodies and get some sort of sense of their composition. Um, we can sort of do comparison studies, see where they came from. So maybe it was scattered from a different part of the disk, and maybe that composition will then tie it to that that other region, um, or vice versa. There, there's all kinds of things that you can do with this, and I really think that will be a fun experiment. I will say near-Earth objects and asteroids, well, any object, has to be in JWST's field of regard. So that means we have a certain amount of the sky that we can actually observe in any given instance. Um, and it's like a donut on the sky. Okay. We can't see directly above, you know, midnight because the telescope doesn't tip with respect to the sun, the sunshade. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, you can think that it can go around, um, it's sunshade. Well, the sunshade moves with it. It's a fixed position. Um, and then, like I said, it's in a boat shape, so we can kind of tilt it up and down. So you get this annulus in the sky. So the the small body has to be in that field of regard. And then the other thing is it has to be in the speed limit that we can actually track a target. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's a big floppy telescope, so you, we can't chase something that's flying across the sky, um, you know, 100 miles an hour, whatever, um, we have a speed limit that's defined that we can actually, that is actually a, a, a requirement of the telescope to be able to track a, a moving body at a certain rate. And that rate is actually the maximum speed of Mars, okay. which was why it was important that we had to be able to observe. Mars. <laughs> okay, okay, I gotcha. Now, so will the uh, web be useful for characterizing uh, near-Earth objects, the orbits of near-Earth objects that might potentially pose a threat to Earth? Um, of course, uh, as long as we know that they exist, <laughs> um, which is one of the challenging things. So we do know of, you know, some close ones in our future. We can obviously observe them and characterize them and, you know, what kind of a body it is and maybe what family it may or may not have come from, origins, et cetera. Um, so, but we can do the same thing for comets that come really close. So it, the high, the as high long as we know where it is. Yeah, the high inclination comets. And so, in, so in other words, if uh, one of the ground telescopes, the survey telescopes like PanStars in Hawaii, spots uh, a threatening asteroid, uh, you can say we have to, we need you to, you know, to look at this uh, asteroid and see if it's going to strike Earth. So we're not the ones to say if it's going to strike Earth, because in order for Webb to observe it, 
we pretty much have to know the orbit, ah. which means somebody else is going to have to do another sort of survey image so that they can get multiple positions in the sky and then figure out where it's going because but, but my, we have but my to point, point the telescope at a position that it's going. So you, you, you <laughs> have, I, I got, so you have to have a basic orbit for the, the potentially threatening asteroid, but could you hone the orbit, you know, and look at it and say, well, from our observations, I think the Earth is going to get a miss. No, so, no, no, it's not going to. It's not going to be yay or nay for, for a potential. No, that problem. is that is absolutely not going to be a role for Webb. Okay, <laughs> okay. Primarily just because we can't look at towards the Earth. <laughs> okay, just that. Um, what we can do is, if they have an orbit, and let's say it's a close, um, they're predicting it to be close to Webb. If it's something we can get in one of our images, which means we still have to know it pretty, the position of that object pretty well. So uh, again, I don't know how well Webb's going to actually refine an orbit, but let's just say hypothetically, if we knew kind of where to look at the right time that it was in our field of view, which our largest field of view is about two arc minutes by two arc minutes, we can let it streak across that field of view and take images at which point we can deconvolve those images and give precise positions with our 0.01 arc second scales to help refine that orbit. But again, it's something that's much better done from an observatory with a larger field of view. And what about uh, the dwarf uh, planet Ceres, uh, which is technically one of the larger um, asteroids of the main asteroid belt? Uh, yeah, Ceres is a fun one. Um, it's a very intriguing and a very interesting object, and it is very bright in the infrared. <laughs> okay. So um, Ceres is actually part of our Guaranteed Time um, program for asteroids led by Andrew Rifkin at uh, John Hopkins APL. Uh, so we had to figure out how to observe Ceres with Webb because we really wanted to put it in our Guaranteed Time program. So we came up with some creative ways of how to actually observe it um, because it's so bright and even the subarrays were having issues. So we think we have a good idea and a good way to do this and um, we will be observing it and seeing you know, what the surface features look like, um, the spectra of course, uh, especially at wavelengths that we've, we haven't had access to with any other facility or um, mission. And so, so will, will um, you uh, be able to resolve some of the outstanding scientific issues about uh, whether or not it might harbor life, microbial life, or ever had life? Okay, so life is a fun question as an astrobiologist. Um, and this is something when I give an astrobiology talk, especially to students or the public, I always ask them, what do you define as life? Because okay. nobody in physical science can agree on that statement. <laughs> right. Um, so whenever people ask about life or biology or um, habitability, when it comes to web, the, what I like to say is what we can do is we can look for molecular signatures that are known tracers of life processes or biological uh, systems that occur on Earth. <laughs> right, but but you will be able to look for organics on on Ceres. Yes, so we could search for organics. Um, that's easier done um, 
as far as if it had an atmosphere, so in the gas phase. But since it really doesn't, it has a remnant exosphere at the best, um, we'll be looking for surface features. So we'll probably be mostly looking for things like water um, on the surface, maybe carbon dioxide, uh, methane, or some other organic ices. Um, The mid-infrared gets quite challenging with this object because it is so bright. It's very thermally bright. So um, seeing features at longer wavelengths that web operates at will be very, very hard to do. And actually, I don't believe it's possible, but I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay, and uh, this is kind of a crazy question, but uh, will um, you be able to characterize asteroids uh, via comp- compositionally in a way that heretofore, heretofore we have not been able to do to help people who are potentially interested in mining asteroids for profit? Um, Potentially. So one thing that we can do that hasn't really been done in asteroid characterization is we have access to hydrated mineral features. Um, So this is something that you cannot do from the ground, and we will have the access to that wavelength coverage with Webb and the sensitivity in the near infrared. And explain what you mean by hydrated. So these are minerals that have been processed by water. So um, that's a there's a, a distinct feature um, in the n- near infrared that is um, attributed to hydrated minerals that is obscured by the Earth's atmosphere. Have you had any contact with any of the c- uh, commercial space people who are interested in this aspect of the mission? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I'm nervous that I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Okay. All right. So. What about uh, comets? Because, you know, uh, 20 years ago when I wrote my book, uh, Distant Wanderers, or, um, the, the paradigm for, for the water in the inner solar system was that it was, most of it was delivered by comets. And now, uh, I don't know, the paradigm has shifted back and forth two or three times. Will JWST yeah. solve the issue of where water in the inner solar where we got our water, basically? So that is still a big question. Um, I am a cometary astronomer. That is my my research area. And comets are the coolest thing in the solar system. (laughs) Right. So, um, which is why I study them. Uh, So I am part of a a very large international, well, I wouldn't say very large. There aren't that many planetary astronomers or cometary astronomers actually in the world. so, but most of them are collaborating with me <laughs> um, on trying to figure out this water problem. The way to do this is to look at the deuterium to hydrogen isotope ratio in water and compare that to what Earth's ocean has. Um, so you'll hear about Vienna um, standard ocean um, measurement which is a certain D over H ratio that has been measured in Earth's ocean which is not what the D over H deuterium to hydrogen value is in any other body in our solar system, except now for a few comets. But we've only measured this ratio in um, up over just a, you know around a dozen of these of, of comets to date. So we need a bigger statistical sample, which is... Um, Basically, what we're we're waiting for an observatory that can do this um, a large survey, so that we can instead of doing these incremental, maybe getting one measurement every year, um, if we have the right telescope in the right part of the sky, 
with good weather and the right wavelength coverage, um, or perhaps a mission, or maybe a, a, a comet mission, or maybe a space telescope that operates at these wavelengths. Anyway, so as far as what Webb can do, um, D over H is a very hard measurement to do at any observatory, but with Webb, it would be very, very challenging. Um, this is because we don't really have the spectral resolution that you need to resolve the deuterium, the HDO, so water with one deuterium atom, um, to resolve that from other molecules. So it's not particularly a good project for Webb. Um, we will try, we'll do our best, but I'm not expecting it to be the end all be all of answering this question. But just to, just it'll probably be a few comments at best. But just to clarify, um, so in other words, you look at the deuterium to hydrogen ratio on earth, compare that number with what you're seeing in comments. And, and that, that's how you make the determination of whether or not there's a match. Is that right? If there's a, if there's a good statistical sample of comets that have a matching ratio, that would suggest that they could have been a distributor or a component of water in, uh, uh, sorry, on Earth. Um, other small bodies have also been argued recently. Um, so a lot of people are, are now um, looking at um, asteroids or um, even smaller bodies um, in the inner solar system as potential sources as well. So, but again, this is a, a statistics game and figuring out, first of all, if we, so like I said, we only have a few comets now that actually have a ratio that's comparable to Earth's. But we don't have any trends as far as that ratio goes. So it's not um, what we would call Jupiter family comets all have a D over H of one value and Oort cloud comets all have a D over H value of another. It's completely scattered. So there's something else that's going on and we don't really know what that is. And that's really a, a challenge for cometary scientists. Um, what is the process that's creating an enrichment in deuterium or a depletion in deuterium in these bodies? Um, is it on the surface? Is it due to solar radiation? Is it the formation of the body? Um, is it how we've measured it? You know, the sampling strategy. There's all kinds of questions that um, are really quite challenging to answer that that particular question. But it is uh, one that's very near and dear to my heart. So I'm glad you asked. But the bottom line, <laughs> uh, as of today, the bottom line is that uh, we can't say f for sure whether comets delivered most most of the uh, water we see in the oceans at this point. We cannot. Because statistically speaking, we've only measured, let's say, 1% or 10% of all the comets that we've measured this ratio and matches the Earth's ocean. Okay. The others right. are all much higher in D over H. Okay. So we're coming kind of uh, to the end of the episode. only have uh, three or four more questions, but... Let's move way out uh, to the uh, to the outer solar system, and how far out will the JWST be able to see? Will it detect the Oort cloud objects, the uh, the uh, family of comets and kind of leftovers from the solar system's formation that are thought to lie as far as what the a light year away? That's a great question, and. 
if you could point to where one is in the Oort cloud, <laughs> we could probably detect it. <laughs> so therein lies the challenge. <laughs> and you will not be doing surveys out there unless you know. No. Where okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are um, really cool experiments that you can do. So, for example, Hellbop. Um, even from the ground, we, we can still observe Hellbop today. Um, so that's sort of something, and it's um, a 20 plus AU, I think, right now. So um, it's definitely on its way back out into the outer solar system, outer, outer. So uh, that could be a fun project with Webb because we do have the sensitivity to be able to detect something like that. Um, okay, but you do it, you do write in 2016. <laughs> I don't think you wrote it necessarily, but you, you contributed to this uh, special issue of the publications of the uh, Astronomical Society of the Pacific (PASP). It was a special issue mm -hmm. on the web uh, and its uh, role in planetary science. And then you, one author wrote, "Web will provide an unprecedented cap capability to investigate the diversity of surface compositions of extremely cold." and distant trans-Neptunian objects or objects that cross yes. within the outer orbit of Neptune. Um, yes. So how will... So those you... aren't Oort cloud. No, those no, are no, 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 no. Kuiper belt. Yeah, okay. Kuiper belt Just objects. for right. clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like Pluto, the, you know, the dwarf planet Pluto is uh, technically a, a Kuiper belt object and the, mm -hmm. and those bodies that lie beyond that the uh, uh, New Horizons mission is flying by are also in the Kuiper belt. Uh, so, you know, you might distinguish between the Kuiper belt and, and the Oort cloud in terms of location, but uh, how will um, JWST characterize these trans-Neptunian objects? And um, others have written that these TNOs will be a powerful probe in the process of uh, understanding planetesimal formation and solar system evolution even. As I said at the beginning, small bodies are really the bread and butter for Webb, um, especially the outer solar system small bodies, so the Kuiper Belt trans-Neptunian-like objects. Um, that's because they're, they are cold. I mean, they're not as cool as comets. We'll just have to accept that. <laughs> okay. um, they are cold. And, uh, yeah, I'm using the cool. Oh, okay, you're, ma you're making a little bit. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Um, anyways, they, they're very cold. So that means, um, they're, the peak of their flux is actually shifted into the infrared. So that means that if we really want to look at them, that is the best wavelength to look at these objects. Um, they don't have a lot of reflected light often. They can be very, very dark objects. So, um, this is how we can really, um, get a handle on what's out there. So again, doing a size distribution, doing some compositional studies, um, will be very interesting. Um, and being able to help put these bodies into families, again, just as I was saying with the asteroids, it, it really feeds back into the whole formation of the solar system and how, you know, planet migration and timelines and um, the the coalescence of planetesimals and disruption of them throughout our solar system uh, history is all going to start coming together, especially when we have the new information that we've gotten with missions like New Horizons, seeing, um, you know, this Kuiper Belt object that's lobed, that has this bilobed structure. I mean, 
clearly showing that, you know, this is two independent bodies that have somehow merged together or um, collided. Who knows? Maybe they're the remnants of a bigger impact. Um, there's all kinds of questions that are coming up now. A number of the comets we've flown by now have shown similar type, you know, bilobe structures. So this means that we can really start honing in on how these bodies formed what the real size distribution is. Are we seeing these smaller individual like components or were they all bigger? Um, and then as they merge somehow, um, you know, drove off some of their material. Uh, there's all kinds of really cool questions and things that we can do um, just by understanding the family, the population distribution and the composition of small bodies throughout the solar system. And what do you mean by bilobe? Uh, the, some listeners may not understand that term. Okay, so some, yeah. So um, think of it looking like a, a bowling ball, a bowling pin. So you have a small head and a body <laughs> that's merged together. <laughs> right. Um, but sometimes they're equal in size. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we see um, two that are just kind of, they look like they're two distinct spheroids that are merged together in some manner or fused. Gotcha. However okay. you want to think of it. All right. Gotcha. All right. So if you had to predict, um, I mean, this is kind of a, a difficult question, but if you had to predict how the JWST might be used in a way that it wasn't designed, uh, what would that be? We already know that answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, first of all, um, and I'll, I'll get to the solar system part of that. But when Webb was designed, exoplanets weren't a thing. All right. And yeah. we had to make Webb become the number one go-to facility now for compositional studies of exoplanets for the next generation. And that was something that was really challenging to do. We had to you know, reconfigure our instruments, think about our optics, think about um, how you do coronography with um, a general purpose observatory that had never had that in the plan. So um, that is one way web will be used that it wasn't originally designed for. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Nope. Um, another thing, which was a really fun project that we did, um, actually while we were writing this um, special issue in PASP, um, was thinking about how to do occultations with Webb. So occultation science in the solar system has just taken a whole new turn, especially with the New Horizons mission, um, trying to find um, you know, new bodies, trying to constrain their orbit, um, seeing how big they are, things like that. Um, and we did do a case study with Webb on this, and it's its its own paper in that special issue. And, just and I think that's going to be give the listener in the PASP. The, you know, what you mean by an occultation in this sense. So an occultation is when a body goes in front of a star and it obscures the light. We can see that shadow from Earth or from Webb in this instance. Um with an observatory um, if we get inside the shadow's path. So um, basically you could think of it, uh, an eclipse as like an occultation, right? So gotcha. it's, it's basically passing a body passing in front of the sun or star, <laughs> um, except for we're just a lot further away. 
so, but it's the same concept. We're basically studying what body is going in front of it. And then from the projection of knowing um, how far away it is, we can then start to delineate how big it is. And um, in some instances, hope, instances, hopefully we'll be able to do this um, routinely with web. So how will the JWST solar system studies, the studies that, that you were uh, in charge of, help characterize extrasolar planets? So there's a lot to be learned still about um, our own solar system and our own planets <laughs> that I think will apply to lessons learned for as we start studying and characterizing planets around other stars. So um, just look at the diversity that we have as far as composition, as far as uh, moons and rings and um, weather and effects that are occurring in, you know, our lifetime scales. Whereas um, it, when we start looking at planets around other stars and we start trying to characterize them and say they're Neptune-like or if they're Earth-like, um, there's things that are going to affect that spectrum that we're looking at them as we look at them remotely that are going to play into um, the interpretation of that data. So updating the models for interpreting the data, um, making sure we have the right dynamics in place. And again, a lot of this goes back to, you know, really understanding our own dynamics and formation of the solar system. It's, you know, that's still a question that we haven't been able to answer completely. Um, we're getting there, we're getting close, but it's one model does really well with one part of solar system formation and another model does really well at another part of solar system formation. We don't have a universal from, you know, planetesimal to current solar system um, environment that works. Uh, so there's a lot of questions to be answered. And I think doing these studies of small bodies um, really will help us with that. And that will help guide us on um, planet migration and the dynamics that happens when that, when that occurs how much scattering could have happened in the, are we seeing these things already? We, we see debris disk all over the place. Um, is that a characteristic signature of, you know, um, either planetesimals, you know, forming larger bodies, or is this something that is a scattering effect from another larger body? Um, and I think as far as planets go, especially if we're honing in on, you know, Earth 2.0, um, we really have to know what, what that looks like and what's going into, you know, remote sensing because we're so far away, we're not going to be able to, you know, resolve trees or continents. So uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. um, we have to really understand what's going on, you know, and I think the best lessons learned are here in our own solar system. And we can't even answer the questions here that we still have today. Okay. So last week it was uh, seaplanes and this week it's uh, leaf blowers. Uh, that's the noise you're hearing outside <laughs> <laughs> next week. Who knows? Anyway. Um, so once it's, it has a nominal 10 year, the telescope has a nominal 10 year operating life of, of 10 years. And that's probably likely to be extended. Wouldn't you think? So, um, well, um, so 10 years is is a fun number. Our requirement is five years. We have a five-year <laughs> okay. primary mission oh, okay. for okay. web. <laughs> um, but we're also required to carry 10 years worth of fuel. Oh, okay. So 
as long as we operate the observatory efficiently and our you know, insertion into L2, our first burn to get out to L2 all happen at the right time and um, we don't overuse our fuel, we should have efficient operations to last us 10 plus years. Okay. And the- I think um, models have suggested 12 years. Uh, it, it really just depends. It, a lot of it depends on a number of factors. So we'll say 10 plus years. And the observatory um, will be at the uh, Earth-Sun Lagrangian point L2. Is that right? Yes. And can yes. you explain? So that's a million miles away. And can you explain, you know, why that's a great location for this? Absolutely. So L2 is um, the anti-sunward position of Earth and Sun. So you could think as the Earth goes around the Sun, we are always behind the Earth on the anti-sunward side. So we're, um, and it's also a gravitational stable point, so it doesn't take too much effort to keep us there. Mm -hmm. It's, um, we have access to the Earth 100% of the time for communications, so data uplink, data downlink, um, controls, etc. We have 100% access to the sun, so we don't have to have a huge solar panel um, for power. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a very modest-sized solar panel, actually. Um, But it's always sunward, because we can't point the telescope towards the sun, so it's always facing the sun. So it's great. We always have access to the sun. Um, But it's also a very thermally stable environment. So this is an infrared telescope. We are looking at infrared light. So it's very, very sensitive, especially being designed to be very, very sensitive, um, to any heat fluctuation whatsoever. And that can be something as simple as the moon going around the Earth. If the moon gets close to um, the observatory, it can actually have a thermal um, impact on the system. That's incredible. So being a million miles away in an orbit that's almost a million miles in diameter, we're far enough away from the Earth and the moon that we don't have that thermal effect. We also are away from debris. Um, so low Earth orbit is getting trashed <laughs> um, with satellites and dead sid- satellites and Fragments of telescopes and who you know, um, astronauts, banana peels or whatever, right? Um, cars, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Tesla, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're far enough away from all of that as well, so we don't have to worry about excess debris or you know impacts from things like that. Gotcha. Now, is there any? Um, go ahead. Is there any uh, potential for? Fuel replenishment, a, a robotic mission to to actually uh, extend the mission by replenishing its fuel. Right. So um, that's sort of where I was getting with the 10-year the lifetime. So I did say everything is dependent on fuel. So we have a fuel tank. The way we stay at L2 is actually by burning fuel. Um, we have to actually correct the orbit about every few every few weeks because our giant um, sunshade actually acts like a solar sail. It's so big that radiation pressure from the sun will actually push on the telescope in a way that wind on Earth pushes on a sail for a sailboat. So we actually have to make sure the telescope stays there. <laughs> and we do that by burning fuel. 
Good. Gosh. And we also have to unload momentum from our reaction wheels by burning fuel. But is there any? So possi- we will be using fuel. Oh, uh, but uh, you're saying, depending on how you conserve your fuel during the during the nominal five year mission, uh, you may you're carrying ten years of fuel, and, and you might get twelve years of use. But I'm saying, right. is there any way? that we could send a robotic uh, spacecraft with fuel to refuel the, uh, the tank. Right. Um, so we did a study on this. Um, actually, uh, we were directed to do a study on putting a gas cap on the tank. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that potentially somebody could come up with a mechanism, a way to do this, um, though nothing like that exists to date. Um, So there's a lot of problems that arise when you think about approaching a cold telescope at a million miles away from Earth with any type of refueling spacecraft, be it manned or robotic. First of all, that spacecraft has to approach your telescope. Um, And to do that, they're going to be burning fuel. Anything in the gas phase that comes near a 50-degree Kelvin cold surface will freeze onto that surface. Mm. And I can tell you that as a fact because I'm an ex- I have a, an experiment <laughs> in a laboratory where I do exactly that. I just put gas into a cold vacuum chamber um, that has a cold piece of metal inside of it and all of that gas condenses onto that cold piece of metal. So anything that comes near it will absolutely freeze onto that cold surface, which will contaminate our mirror in a way that we will not be able to decontaminate it. We do not have heaters on our mirrors. So that will immediately cause sensitivity problems to the observatory. And not to mention, um, it can also condense onto the sunshade, um, which will cause scattered light effects as well. Okay. And that's, so- that's a really big problem. Right. The other problem is, um, by the time the technology is ready to service a telescope, that is being launched in the next year. Um, the instruments on board James Webb will will be the the last generation's worth of instruments. They're already working on what's going to be flying in 10, 20 years from now. So things are improving at such a significant rate. We're already looking at the next great observatories. It's it's going to be obsolete technology. It's unfortunate. But Hubble, we were able to go up and replace the instruments. We got to put in new detectors, new instruments. And that was a really great benefit for having a serviceable telescope like Hubble. Um, Future generation observatories that are currently under study for NASA um, have all been directed to be serviceable because we expect in the 2030s that this is going to be something that will be accessible um, and what we should be doing. So how can we, you know, update our instruments? How can we replenish fuel? How can we replenish cryogen? Things like this. Gotcha. Web just doesn't have that capability. And it's really, um, unfortunately, not not optimal as far as the design goes or um, just where where we lie in the current timeline of events. And so it, it, uh, it literally is going to have a hard limit of 12 years, operational hard limit of 12 years. Well, not, I mean, 12-ish. I don't know what the, the 10 plus years. <laughs> 10 plus years. But it's not it, it, It's not going to last beyond. Uh, uh, Once we run out of fuel, the it. mission will be terminated. That's it. It's not yes. going to be like, uh, 
Uh, you're not going to have the luxury of servicing it like the uh, like the Hubble. Finally, paint a picture for us of uh, if we were in a spacecraft. I know we're not going to be, but let's just say you know we were just flying by hypothetically. What would it look like? Uh, what would we notice about it first? And uh, is it able to slew from one object to the next? In other words, will we would we be able to detect movement if we were flying by? I think a lot of that depends on which way you were flying. <laughs> um, I think the most noticeable feature about JWST is the sunshade um, followed by the, the primary mirror, the 18 segments of gold. <laughs> they're hard to miss and they're beautiful. I think the, the sunshade will be a little bit more noticeable. It's, it's quite a bit bigger. Um, and it's actually kind of purplish in color on the bottom, which is fun. Um, even though we always, well, at least I always imagine it as this, you know, sort of aluminum foil, mylar balloon type material. Um, the insulation that's actually on the bottom layers is uh, purplish in color. Um, so that's that's a fun thing to see. So uh, it, it will be quite spectacular. Um, I will say... Uh, we won't be able to see the gold mirror from the ground because, again, we can't point the telescope towards the Earth. <laughs> so all you will get to see, if you see anything at all, would be the the, the bottom side, the sunward side of the sun shield. Okay. Um, would we see it moving? Um, potentially. It depends on if you flew by during, um, you know, uh, either tracking an object in the solar system or if we were moving from one target to the next Um but I will say, in general, the telescope isn't going to move very much. And that's where this whole operational efficiency comes into play. We want to try to make sure we're looking at objects in the same part of the sky around the same time. That way we're not slewing the telescope a whole lot, building up our um, angular momentum from um, our uh, reaction wheels, because that has to be dumped with burning fuel. So the less we have to use those, the better. Um, so ideally, we wouldn't want to see it really moving around. <laughs> and the reaction um, wheels uh, play what role? You mentioned them a couple of times. Uh, that's what that's what points the telescope. Okay. Um, so that's what moves it. And um, so they, you know, for every reaction, there is a opposite reaction. And so that's how reaction wheels work. They spin one way to point the telescope the opposite way. Okay. And you, this keeps us from burning fuel to actually do our guiding and pointing. So final question. Do you think that our solar system is rare? Or do you think uh, systems like ours are going to be commonplace? The architecture of our own solar system seems to be unique, at least among the exosystems found thus far. I think... There was definitely something peculiar about how our solar system formed. Um, that being said, we still don't, we haven't seen half the sky. <laughs> so um, there's, there's still a lot to look for. Um, it's, it's pretty vast out there. I just wanted to know if you have a way that listeners can comment or, or contact you uh, if they want more information. Absolutely. They can send me an email. Um, which you can um, we'll post it in a generic way <laughs> so I don't get too much spam. <laughs> um, they're 
And also, I want to encourage people to check out the special issue that we've been um, talking about. It's the publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. It's a January 2016 special issue, volume 128. Um, it covers all kinds of science that we're anticipating doing with Webb in the solar system. And you also have a Twitter handle, don't you? I do. Um, and that's another way to reach me. It's at S-N-Milam, M-I-L-A-M. Okay. As always, uh, please follow Cosmic Controversy at uh, brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Stephanie, thanks again, and, and let's hope that the, by the end of next year, the JWST will be sending back great images. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>